Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, I'm really excited because we have someone very special on the podcast today, and that very special person is Sierra Malnov with Creamed Honey Company and Sierra's Bees LLC, and she's out of Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. And I really wanted to reach out to Sierra because she's got just a fascinating business operation. Sierra, you do a fantastic job with your business. You know how to promote it, you know how to market it, and you are rocking what you're doing. So I am excited to have you on to kind of talk about this private beekeeping service that you offer. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I've been a, an admirer of your podcast for a long time. I think you and Jamie do an awesome job and I love listening to it myself and uh, I appreciate you uh, reaching out and having me on. Yeah. So we always love to introduce our guests with the beekeepers around the world. And so can you just quickly introduce yourself and maybe tell everyone how you got into beekeeping? Yeah. So I have kind of a funny story. Um, I got into beekeeping because I actually really wanted to have chickens. Um, <laughs> when I moved to South Florida, um, I was a stay-at-home mom homeschooling my kids and I really wanted to have chickens. I had garden beds in my front yard, um, but in the city of Boca Raton, you're not allowed to have chickens. So um, I started doing a little research and in the back of my head, I knew that my dad had been a beekeeper when I was a baby. Um, and so I thought, well, I wonder if I could keep bees. Um, and of course, in the state of Florida, you know, um, we have the right to keep bees. And so that's really how I got into beekeeping. I mean, I've been obsessed with honey. I bought a lot of honey at farmer's markets um, while my kids were young. And it just kind of seemed like a natural progression for me to start um, keeping bees. Um, I love that. It's like, you can't keep chickens. I'll show you, I'll keep bees. Yeah, right. <laughs> like that's like a really good strategy. <laughs> yeah, right. Like chickens are so easy and they don't bother anybody. <laughs> exactly. Like, so instead we'll keep boxes of stinging insects on zero lot lines in the city. Okay. <laughs> but that's so, really how it started. So you got, you got your bee colonies. How long ago was that? And then how did it segue into this kind of your, your idea for your private beekeeping services, all the different things that you do as a beekeeper? So I got my first colony, I think it was probably about 10 um, years ago. And I fell in love with the bees. I actually set my first hive up outside of my bedroom window and I would sit in the chair inside and watch the bees coming and going. And I just completely fell in love. Um, and you know, I, I was going through um, some li big life changes. I was going through a divorce and I knew that I would need to go back to work. I knew my kids were going to be put into school. And um, I have a degree in biology. I went to UC San Diego and I did research when I was in college on medicinal leeches, actually. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to go back to doing something like that. Um, I 
I wanted flexibility because I had three young children and, you know, at that point in time, you know, about a year or two into my beekeeping, that one hive turned into 10, turned into 20. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I could, you know, raise queens or do something like that. And so I had this vision that I would start raising queens. And I actually put up a hundred swarm boxes all over my county. And I caught free bees and requeened everything and, and started my business in that way. Um, but during that time, um, Al, who's now my partner, and he's actually the one that gave me my first beehive, he had done a talk at a country club in Boca to like their garden club. And after his talk, the ladies there begged him. They said, oh my gosh, we loved your talk. Um, we would love to keep bees here at our, at our country club. And he said, oh, well, I don't do that sort of thing, but I know this lady who lives in Boca and she would probably do it for you. Um, and that was 2000, August, August, I think of 2014. And so that was actually my first country club. We put in two colonies and um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the country club life, but um, when one country club has something, all the country clubs mm. want to have it or a version <laughs> of it. <laughs> um, I mean, those people are truly living their best lives. I mean, it's like they're living at Disney World every day. Um, there's lots to do. There's lots of exciting things. And um, they do really love to get into things that um, give back that feel good. And, um, you know, my, my business has just turned into something that makes people feel good. And of course it's become a, a great, a great business for me. Yeah. So I had actually heard it described as concierge beekeeping, and I know that you call it private beekeeping services. So can you just tell our listeners, you know, what is that? What does that mean? Is this common? You know, do you know of others that do this type of business as well? So I think there are a few other people that do it. I love your name, Concierge Beekeeping Services. It sounds way fancier than so fancy. um, what I've been calling it. Um, but basically, I when I tell people about what I do, I kind of describe it. I'm like the pool guy, except I'm the bee lady. And I bring bees to the country club. We choose a spot to put them um, that works for everyone. And um, I come every month. I take care of the bees. And then we small batch, private label, each club's honey for sale um, or for giveaway to their members. So it really is, um, you know, a, a service-based customer service, a lot of interaction with people. Um, it, it's actually a lot of fun. Gosh, there's so many questions going through my head about this. And I, and I, I just want to ask like, how, what, how, what's the revenue stream for you? Do the country clubs pay you to do the service? Do they pay you for the honey? How, how does that work? How, how's the business structure work? Yeah, good question. So, um, they do pay me a monthly service, just like a, you'd pay a pool guy. Um, and then everything else is sort of a la carte. So there's a monthly service for me to come for me to check the bees. And typically I'm there, you know, I'm there at least once a month, um, sometimes twice a month. Um, to take care of the bees, to monitor, to make sure they have food, to make sure that they're healthy, to make sure they're queen right, to try and minimize swarming, because of course, we don't want that happening um, in those locations. So I'm there at least once a month, but it's a monthly um, 
service fee that, that just every single month. And then when there's um, honey harvests, they pay me basically a per pound to extract their honey. They pay me per jar, per label, um, you know, and, and I really, I tell them that this is their program and it should be exactly how they want it. And um, if I don't stock a jar that they want, please tell me and we'll get it for you and we'll make what comes back to you exactly what you want it to be. Sierra, I think this is just brilliant and it's really cool and exciting to hear you talk about this. So I want to ask a little bit more um, about the the kind of work involved. So you've got these revenue streams, but it's also work on your end. And so work always translates into time. So what's the time commitment associated with these? So like, like you mentioned, I go once a month or once every other month, like how many such business partners or clients maybe is a better word. Can you, can a single individual have like, what's your, like, at what point do you branch out and hire additional people? What's the threshold for space, et cetera. Could you tell a little bit about your inputs into this job? Yeah. So, you know, I started with one, which quickly, very quickly grew to, I think three in my first year and I'm up to 28 clubs now, I think, and private clients. Whoa. (laughs) That's crazy. It's a lot. And so, you know, a lot, I am going to be honest, a lot of my time is actually spent driving from location to location because most of my clubs will just have four hives. I have a four hive minimum. I have a couple of clubs that have over 20. Um, but for the most part, each, each club or resort has, or private client has 20, has four colonies. So I spend a lot of time driving. And then when I get there, I spend a lot of time talking to people. Um, You know, this is what we're going to do today because I have to go to golf maintenance to get a golf cart. It's amazing. I've never hit a golf ball in my life, but I drive around in golf carts (laughs) on beautiful golf courses, like almost every day. In a bee suit. (laughs) In a bee, yeah. So, um, So I go and get my golf cart. And when I get my golf cart, I'm talking, you know, I'm interacting with the people who work there. And then I'm checking the bees and, you know, to check four colonies sometimes takes only a few minutes. Um, But then again, I'm on a golf course, so I've had to learn golf course etiquette. So sometimes I'm stuck behind, you know, a group of people golfing and I just enjoy and look for birds and look for what flowers are in bloom. And if I see something in bloom, I'll get off the cart and take a picture um, because I do report back. I send um, pictures, I send, you know, health updates or what's going on in the colony if we're in a honey flow. So a lot of my time is spent driving around and doing the customer service aspect of it. But, you know, last year I did hire someone and it, because 28 is a lot for me to do on my own, (laughs) Um, because as you know, in beekeeping, there's so much that goes along um, behind the scenes, right? It's like, um, we're in South Florida. So wax moths are a huge problem. You cannot leave your combs sitting out. So we have a huge walk-in freezer that we keep all of our combs in. And this year we've pretty much run out of space. So we have a huge chest freezer and now we're rotating combs in and out of the freezer in order to keep everything um, clean and ready to use when they're, it's time to put them back on. Then we have the honey house. Um, We have a kosher certified food facility for bottling honey because a lot of these clubs want to, or all of them really, they want to be able to sell their honey in their pro shop or um, some of them even sell in local markets. 
Um, so we do have a certified facility, so we've got to keep that maintained. But really, you know, what's the threshold for, you know, one person? I don't know. It was pretty hard for me to, especially now that we've started Creamed Honey Company, it's been really difficult for me to keep up with the clubs on my own. So um, hiring Chris last year has really been um, a huge help. And he works with me three days a week and it's awesome. That's amazing. I have so many thoughts and so many comments about what you've just said. I mean, first of all, if I was going to a golf course, I would definitely be that crazy person in a suit, just like driving through games and people would not be very happy with me. So I'm glad you follow. <laughs> I'm glad you follow like golf course etiquette while you're going through. And it's definitely something that's learned. Um, while I've been training Chris, it's like, you know, I'm it's, there's so much that I do automatically that I don't even think about. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's actually been a huge learning experience for me to try and, you know, teach somebody what I do because it's the human aspect, right. The interacting with people, it's the, you know, golf etiquette. Um, but then it's also the beekeeping, right. And right. you've got to know bees, but not just knowing bees because you're not in a location where you can just go through the hives like a bear or go through quickly and efficiently like you would do if you're a commercial beekeeper. You really have to keep the energy in the air um, controlled and maintained. Right. And, and that's a huge, huge part of what I do. Yeah. And something else that you just brought up. I mean, so I know I've been to your honey house before and it's beautiful and you've got all, you've got this facility. And I remember just seeing, you know, all of the five gallon buckets of honeys for all the different programs that you have. And, and as you mentioned, a lot of it is working with the public or working with people who may or may not understand the beekeeping world. And so, you know, that kind of leads me into my next question is, do you see yourself as a beekeeper and educator or both? And what do you think that your business really means to the industry? So I, I consider myself to be a beekeeper. I mean, we do raise our own bees um, commercially. This is actually the first year we're not sending a load of bees to California almond pollination. Um, so number one, I'm a beekeeper. I would say um, educator, you know, I don't, I don't really put myself up that high, um, but I really feel like I'm a steward to um, the industry. My goal is to give people that would not otherwise have positive interactions with bees, a positive interaction with bees, right? Um, you know, that really is essential to my business. If one person has, has a bad experience, it really hurts my business and hurts the bees. And, um, you know, I got into this because I'm in love with bees, right? I fell in love with bees and I want everybody to have some sort of positive interaction with bees, whether it's, you know, looking at the hives on the golf course or just having this beautiful jar of honey show up that came like literally from their backyard or from that golf course where they, where they play golf. So Sierra, we've got beekeepers listening to us from literally all around the world and they're, and they're now listening to this interview going, oh my gosh, I can do that. How brilliant is, is Sierra's idea and what she's doing in this business and it's an ambassador for bees everywhere. But I want to ask a little bit about the business part of it. What are some things that people getting into this type of business need to be aware of? What are some recommendations that you have 
for folks who are interested in providing this service. And I'll give you some, some leads. So for example, how do you find clients? What, what are the rules and regulations that you had to look into and discover to make sure you're doing it right? Do you carry you know insurance for your business or liability insurance since it's bees on golf courses, et cetera? So what are some of the things kind of in, in those regards that folks need to be aware of as they as they look to get into something similar? Yeah, so there are a lot of there's a lot of paperwork because yes, the when I got that first club and they contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to do it, the first thing I had to do was get liability insurance, right? You have they everybody that I work with before I'm even allowed to come on property or be, definitely before I get paid, they need to have my W9, they need to have a copy of my insurance, they need my workman's comp information. Um, there's a lot of information that they want you to have in place. Um, and and a lot of them have a lot of concerns. Usually the person that reaches out to me, um, and, and again, that's, that is how I find clients is I've never advertised. It's all of my clients have reached out to me, um, wow. just by word of mouth, wow. but wow. when they reach out to me, they're excited about the program, right? But there's always someone either on the board of the country club or a member at the country club, who's going to freak out or, you know, be worried or not like the fact that they're bringing boxes of stinging insects, um, to their club. So, um, you know, that, that is a stumbling block that sometimes I come across. Um, but usually we can have some well thought out conversations, or we can come in and do a talk like Al had done at that first country club where we educate people about what it's like to live with bees in South Florida and, um, in country club and golf course situations, you know, I've, I've never cold called or advertised to try and find any of my clients. They all call me. And, and sometimes it's, it's, um, there's a lot of turnover in the golf industry. So a director of golf maintenance at one club will move to a different club and they will bring my program with them. So now I still have this club that he was at, but now I've got the next club that he's at or his assistant will move up and become the superintendent at his own golf course and he'll bring the program with him. So I've gotten a lot of clients that way, um, but it's really um, all word of mouth. Um, and I would say for anyone wanting to start something like this, be thoughtful and be careful. The number one goal should always be to give everyone a safe and positive interaction with the bees. So I like to say, if you aren't comfortable working bees without gloves, without a veil, you should not be keeping bees in these scenarios um, because all of the people that will be around you <laughs> will not have a veil or gloves, right? So um, if you can't control the energy in the air, if you um, are afraid to work the bees without gloves or without a veil, then it's probably not the right scenario for you um, because there, there is a lot of liability involved, right? And one bad experience will really give um, a sour taste in the, in the mouth of, of whoever that happens to. And just like all of my clients have come to me word of mouth, that word of mouth would travel even faster in the other direction if there was mm -hmm. an issue. Um, so it's, you know, 
be thoughtful, you know, don't go and put 20 hives in one spot. It's pretty easy to control the energy in the air when you're working one hive or two hives. Um, the more hives you work in one spot at one time, the more out of control the possibility, you know, for the energy in the air is. So just be really thoughtful about how you do it. Um, choose the right location. Um, that's really the most important part of my program is choosing the right spot so that everyone has a good experience, including the bees. Yeah. I mean, I think it's amazing. And I think definitely your success helps, um, you know, with that reputation that you've created is that you have been able to put bees on public well, it's not public land, but Some of where... them are. I, I have two public golf courses. Actually. Okay. So where the general public um, hangs out though, you know, just someone mm -hmm. hanging out on the other side of a beehive. And so I think that also is very, very important with, uh, I think with your success. So Sarah, you were talking about the location of the bees, right? And so I guess the follow-up question that I have is based on when you're looking for a location, you know, are you trying to hide them? from people so that they can't see them? Or are you trying to make them visible so that, um, so that, you know, people can kind of learn about the honeybees or how do you decide where to locate the bees on the properties that you work with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and probably the most important one, right? So some of my clients want their bees front and center. They want everybody who's golfing on hole number three to see the bees when they're teeing off or when they are, you know, at the, at the hole trying to hit their ball in. Right. So when we have scenarios like that, we have to be really careful because the bees are visible, they're in areas in play. And so this is sort of where I've learned over time, um, you know, with the golfing etiquette and with how golf is played, right? You don't want bees um, in a typical landing zone um, when somebody's hitting their ball from the tee down the fairway. There's a typical zone where the ball will land before you hit it again to the next spot. So you don't want bees to be in those sections. You don't want bees on a cart path. Um, so we're very strategic about where we place the bees, right? Facing a hedgerow off to the side. Um, maybe it's across a lake, um, something like that. Um, and then I have some clients who don't want anybody to know they have bees until beautiful jars of honey show up. So I have some locations where the bees are in, not necessarily on the golf course, but in common area maintenance, like on a back canal, or I have a couple locations um, where the bees are located behind their golf maintenance shop. So um, I really take into account their goals, um, but again, keeping in mind um, the safety aspect, right? Because we don't want bees where they have to mow back and forth. Um, some of these golf courses mow like three times a day. I know it sounds crazy, um, but if they're having to mow this area one, two, three times a day, don't want to have the bees there. So we choose areas um, that are low maintenance. Um, and, and that really helps keep everybody happy, right? The golfers, the maintenance staff, because I like to show up and be the happy lady, right? I don't want anybody to be mad at me when that bee lady shows up because I was mowing over there. I was trimming the bushes over there and those bees suck, right? Like I, that is not the role I want to be in. I want to be the happy lady, beautiful, sweet jars of honey show up. Um, and, and everybody has a good time. So location really, really is important. 
Sarah, I've so enjoyed this interview. It's really cool to hear how you approach your business. And you mentioned something a little earlier I want to circle back on and just ask you about. You mentioned offering a la carte services. So that implies to me that each club can can choose from this list of services that you offer and create a unique experience for them. So I'm curious how unique all the, the clients are. You mentioned having 28 clients. So how unique are the packages that they choose? And then if you don't mind, you also mentioned that you you not only do this for clubs, but you do this for private individuals. And I'm curious how those two different clients um, give you a different experience. Yeah, so um, it it's so much fun working with um, the country clubs because they're always looking to do something new, something exciting. So, um, you know, we have basic jars, right? Some of them um, at some of my locations, the program originates with the chef. And so a lot of the honey is either coming back in gallon jugs or in five gallon buckets. Um, you know, which is not as exciting for me, but it's really exciting for the chef where they get to use something that's literally coming from their location and they really highlight it on their menu. Um, and then we have, you know, different size and style jars so that everybody can customize and have the look that they want from little tiny jars that they're giving with tea service to larger jars for member member golfing events or board meetings or or weddings or galas so um you know you have the jar aspect and then you have the other exciting things like we just did custom printed gift boxes so you know having the knowledge to kind of think outside the box really and you know find something new and unique because i've i've found that it's really exciting the first year um, and it's exciting the second year, but country club living is always about something new and exciting, right? It's like living at Disney World and being entertained every single day. And so they really want new and exciting things. And, um, you know, I have some clubs that year after year, sometimes they're like, oh, we don't know what to do with the honey. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do you mean? It's so amazing. So I've always got to kind of be on my toes and try and find new things that we can do. Um, and, and that's been really fun, right? Because they are always up for doing something new and exciting, right? A custom gift box, a custom trio. We've done custom creamed honey. Um, and everybody's honey tastes totally different. I have some clubs um, up here in Jupiter that are two miles down the road from one another. Two miles, two miles, two miles, two miles everybody's honey tastes totally different. I mean, it's really, really fun and really incredible. Um, and then with the private clients, it is a little bit different, but some of my private clients, you know, we have bees on their home property and they own three liquor stores and we bottle it for them to sell in their liquor stores. Um, so I have private clients like that. And then I have private clients that, um, meet me in the bee yard or I'm not in the bee yard in their backyard, um, and want to learn about how to take care of their own bees. So it's like beekeeping lessons. Then I have other clients who just want pollination in their yard, or they really love bees and they want a hive. And so I'm literally like the pool guy. There's very little interaction, um, I show up, I take care of the bees, I text them a report and then honey, either I have a one client that takes the box of, of honey from me and she extracts it herself. I have another client that doesn't really care about the honey at all. I have another client who um, wants it in five gallon buckets. And then I have clients who want it in jars. 
So it's really, you know, my business is really tailored to the individual needs of each client. Um, and some people tell me that I'm making too much work for myself. I've had other beekeepers tell me, why don't you just extract it all and then give them what their portion is? And it's like, that's not what they want, right? They really want something tailored, um, something special. And everybody's honey is so different that it really is, you know, it's not doing them a service to, to do it that way. So it really is, you know, service-based. Again, I'm, this is their program and I'm just here to, to give them their vision. Yeah, I think that that is all amazing. So the last question that I have for you, and I'm going to ask this and I'll tell my list, I'll tell the listeners why I'm asking this, but who was your favorite Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services apiary inspector? <laughs> That's a terrible question. Oh my goodness, Amy, is this live? <laughs> <laughs> because you know that I, that one of them works for me now and I adore him, of course, Chris Alonzo works for me, but I have to tell you, I have loved, genuinely loved every single inspector that we've had. Perfect, my, Sierra. My, <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you, the first inspector I ever had was Caitlin, and she's awesome. We all know that she's awesome. She was the very first one to inspect one of my clubs, and of course, at my, you know, my own home bees also. And then we had Chris Alonzo, and then um, Chris Oser, who you guys have now. And now we're really without an inspector in my county, um, which is kind of a bummer, but I'm sure whoever, whoever comes will love just as much. So I was totally joking because uh, <laughs> when I was, when I was putting your questions together for the podcast, Chris Oster, who is part of our lab, he used to be your inspector. So yes. he comes into my office and he's like, I'm like, Hey, what questions should I ask Sierra? You know, I've got these lists. And he was like, you should ask her who her favorite inspector was. And I'm like, I bet it wasn't you. <laughs> he was awesome. You know, he was, sometimes I feel like the inspectors call me more often just because it's so much fun to go ride around in golf courses. And <laughs> so I've gotten to spend a lot of time with Chris Oster, actually. Um, he, he, he's probably inspected the most number of clubs for me. Um, but he's great. You can tell him I love him. I think he's awesome. Okay. <laughs> so Sierra, the next time I come visit you, I am super excited for you to take me around on a golf cart. And I'm going to tell Jamie that I was working all day. <laughs> uh, was there anything else that you wanted to add? No, I think that's about it. I mean, I love my job. It's so much fun. Um, we're so lucky in Florida, right? And especially South Florida, beekeeping year round. I mean, it's awesome. doesn't get any better than this. Absolutely. All right, Sierra. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that our listeners have really found it intriguing and now they're going to aspire to be you one day. <laughs> thank you for having me. So Jamie, I feel like this series of just bringing in people to talk about ways that they make money, it's just been so fun. It's It's been so much fun listening to people and their specialty and how they got into it and just all the creative ways I think people have been able to make money with honeybees. I tell you what, when we started this series, we were just thinking about ways to introduce the beekeepers around the world. Here's additional ways you can make money beyond simply producing honey or beeswax right. or pollinated crops. And I have absolutely enjoyed every interview, Sierra's. There's no 
different. I love how much knowledge they have. I, I love how a lot of the folks we're interviewing for some of these kind of niche markets are literally creating businesses that don't exist elsewhere. So they've mm -hmm. had to do so much research, learn by trial and error, figure out about insurance and all that stuff. And, and one of my favorite quotes throughout all of Sierra's interview, she kept saying it. I love it. This idea of, you know, I go to these clubs and I manage the energy in the air and Sierra, you know, you and I get the benefit. We know Sierra personally, we've known her for many years now. And she's just that kind of person, very positive, very happy, loves bees. And you can imagine how, you know, her vision for her business when talking to prospective clients is just infectious. Mm -hmm. And that's part of being successful in the honeybee world is having that love for honeybees that comes first, having that love for the environment, the love for the business, and really wanting to share that in a very positive way, in an infectious way to do just what Sierra says, which is manage that energy in the air. I love that idea. So Jamie, the other thing too, is, you know, a lot of these people coming in and talking to us about their businesses, you know, they make it sound so easy, right? Like, I think yeah. she's just like, oh yeah, we just like go to golf courses, like get on golf carts, ride around and go take pictures of, uh, go take pictures of bees or flowers. But really, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, right? I mean, it, it's just, I can't even imagine the amount of work that it takes. And so I just totally respect everyone that, that, is creative with their businesses and who's able to generate revenue in, in very unique ways. Well, I mean, that's very true. And think about Sierra specifically. I mean, she's working on golf clubs where golf courses where, where she even mentioned herself, the liability risk is potentially high. You know, these, the folks who are out there playing the folks who are out there jogging or exercising or the grounds crew. And, but, but while some clubs won't be visible, so she's got to be so knowledgeable. It's hard work. Mm -hmm. She's had to do a lot of research. You have to plant the colonies exactly where they need to be to be in the background, but not close enough to be potentially a danger. You know, she lives in South Florida. It's got that added issue potentially of having Africanized bees um, in the area and combating the messages associated with that. So there's just so much work that goes into something like that. And, you know, beyond the marketing and beyond the fun, there's all the physical work of beekeeping. Right. Beekeeping doesn't change just because you're doing it on a golf club or mm -hmm. at a private individual's house, it's still hard labor with a stinging insect. And I, people who can manage that, keep that joy, keep that fervor, manage that energy in the air can really go on to be very successful business folks, even with, you know, a limited number of colonies. She never mentioned that she's keeping hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of colonies. She's saying, you know, I've got 28 clients that range from four colonies to 20 colonies. And so you can be a very successful entrepreneur in the bee world with that kind of focus, but it will, like you said, Amy, it will take work. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So this is kind of my call out to our listeners. You know, we've, we've highlighted some Florida beekeepers and if there are beekeepers out there who have a unique business or you think would be very good on the podcast, uh, feel free to send us an email or message us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Great point, Amy. The reason we're highlighting the Florida beekeepers is we just happen to know them well yeah. because we run in their circles. But if you're out there anywhere on the globe and you know someone who has a really niche, creative ways to make money with honeybees and beekeeping, let us know. We'd love to have them on our podcast and open up that business opportunity to our listeners everywhere. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. 
Welcome back to the question and answer time. Jamie, I'm excited because I haven't talked to you. Actually, our listeners don't know this, but I actually haven't spoken to you in probably a month now. Yeah, it's been a while and, I, and there's a really good reason for that, right, Amy? We just don't yeah. like each other. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. No, you're in South Africa right now. You tried to get as far away from us as possible. So uh, so you're in yeah, South right. Africa and I'm I'm excited to, we won't do this for the Q&A, but I'm excited to interview both you and Kaylin, our PhD student, um, to talk about, you know, what you all are doing there. Yeah, so for our listeners, um, Kaylin, who, who, as you mentioned, Amy, is a PhD student, is doing some research in South Africa, and she's starting uh, this year to set up her field sites. And so since this is her first trip here, kind of under this research paradigm, my family and I actually traveled with her to South Africa. We're based here for two months. We've, you know, we're talking now, again, the listeners don't get the benefit of knowing the timeline when all this is recorded, but I've been here, we've been here almost a month now, and we have about another month to go. And so you and I tried our best to record as many interviews as possible before I left, but we had a lot of Q&A that we still needed to do while I was gone, and this is one of those Q&As. So yeah, I'm joining from South Africa, six hours ahead of you right now. <laughs> Very cool. So I was part of an at-home beekeeping series, and that was in March of 2023. And during that uh, series, Jeff Williams was talking about the Bee Informed Partnership and some of the Varroa monitoring decision tools that BIP has. And so I basically just pulled questions from that chat and I thought that we could take some time to answer those. So those are the questions that people will be hearing for the next couple of months. Um, so let's get started. The first question that we have, so this person was asking, does oxalic acid treatment need to be rotated? And they were under the understanding that it did not need to be rotated. And, you know, we're always talking about rotating active ingredients with Varroa control. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is a really good question. And it's really one that I think, you know, Dr. Cameron Jack from the lab would be a really good expert to answer because I'm going to paint myself in a corner with a comment that I'm about to say, but the shortest possible answer here is that the listener, the questioner, is in theory correct. The mode of action of oxalic acid is different than what you would see from things like amitriaz or some of the thymol-based products that are believed to have, etc. So it kills varroa a different way. And as and, and based on the way that it does and, and, and how it ends up in the hives and all of that stuff, its residue levels, etc., it is less likely for varroa to develop resistance to it than to other compounds. And kind of under that umbrella answer, if that's the case, then one person could argue, maybe we should just always use oxalic acid. If the level of resistance development's very low or the likelihood is very low, why use anything else at all? And I would argue a couple of things is while the you know possibility of resistance develops low, it's not nothing, right? It's not negligible because if enough people across the, the world are using oxalic acid and all the time it's happening, in theory, Varroa can develop resistance to it, even if the likelihood is low compared to some of these other compounds. That's number one. Number two, oxalic acid doesn't work at all times of the year in all settings. So for example, if you have a lot of brood present in the hive, it's not a good treatment option because a lot of your Varroa are in those brood cells. And so even though it is technically true that the likelihood of resistance development is low compared to some of these other compounds, that doesn't make it an ideal compound to use all the time. So yes, if you try to use oxalic acid, it should be included in a rotation with other Varroa treatments. And again, Amy, you know, as you and I have said now a thousand times, if you just go to the Honeybee Health Coalition website 
their Varroa control section. If you take their little Varroa control decision support tool, it'll tell you when oxalic acid is a really good op uh, option for you, depending on where you are, the time of year, the condition of your colony, et cetera. So Jamie, it sounds like uh, it sounds like as far as resistance goes to oxalic acid, they're probably what would you say needs to be more research that needs to go on with it? Is is there a lot of research going on with OA resistance or is it just, you know, because of the mode of action that that it's not really needing to be studied? So I've not heard of any examples of varroa development of resistance to OA. And, and, and again, the folks who study this closely, look at the mode of action, argue that there's a very low likelihood of development of resistance. But but I would say a low likelihood, again, doesn't equate to no chance of resistance development. Right. And with enough people using it all the time, it's it just seems inevitable maybe even that this could happen. But again, I, I hesitate to say that because I know there's a lot of true diehard kind of OA believers out there. And, and, and I usually don't argue that we need to rotate it from a resistance standpoint, but more so argue that we need to rotate it from an efficacy standpoint. It's just simply not always efficacious in all settings, in all colony conditions at all times of the year. And so that's a good reason to need to use other compounds as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so for the second question, this individual is asking, do you think that using drone comb uh, increases the number of drones produced or will the colony only produce more or less set percentage of drones as determined by the vigor of the colony? Yeah, that's an interesting question as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, in theory, worker bees are the ones that control the production of drones. Yes, queens will lay drone eggs. That's absolutely true. And maybe they indiscriminately lay drone eggs and don't know to stop laying drone eggs when it's not drone egg production season. But when workers don't want drones, they abort the eggs. And that's the simple truth. And so mm -hmm. essentially, workers will rear through the number of drones that they want to have at a given time of year. And so when you add drone comb, you could argue that workers will not produce any more drones than they want in the first place. Therefore, adding drone comb doesn't give you more drones. But I would argue that that's not true. And the reason it's not true is because in a wild colony, a colony that's not managed by a human, workers would produce way more, proportionally more drones than we ordinarily allow them to mm -hmm. in our managed colony. Think about it. If you've got a 10 frame box, you're giving 10 frames of foundation and that foundation's worker foundation. So the drones that the workers produce are from comb that they build on the bottom of the frame or sections of foundation that have been messed up. And rather than building it back worker comb, they'll build it back drone comb. So when, so our colonies, you could argue, actually produce proportionately fewer drones than they ordinarily would if allowed to build comb completely on their own. So giving them a frame of drone foundation allows them to make probably more drones along the lines of what they would actually do in a wild setting than in the managed settings we give them. So in theory, they could max out their own drone production and not want to use that drone comb to produce more drones. But I think that is far less likely than the alternative which is they will use that drone comb to produce more drones. Right. And so, you know, all these questions are related to Varroa. And so mm -hmm. for our new beekeepers out there, do you want to talk about why a beekeeper would put a, a drone comb in a colony? Yeah, absolutely. Drone comb removal is a Varroa management technique. Now, I'm careful to say Varroa management rather than Varroa control because it doesn't completely control Varroa. And the premise upon which it works is that varroa 
are more attracted to drone brood than they are to worker brood. And there's lots of potential reasons for this to be the case, but the predominant reason seems to be that Varroa can simply produce more offspring. Drones take three, uh, three more days to develop on average than do workers. And so Varroa have three extra days in a protected covered cell to produce more offspring when they're reproducing on drones and when they're reproducing on worker. I, I forget the average, but I think it's one to one and a half more offspring they're able to produce on drones on average than they are workers. So it, it benefits Varroa to go into drone cells rather than worker cells. And so taking advantage of this biological phenomenon, beekeepers can use drone comb. And while uh, the larvae are developing, Varroa will invade their cells. And when bees have fully capped over all of the drone cells on that comb, you'll have a disproportionately higher percentage of Varroa trapped in those drone cells than in the other worker cells in the nest. And then when that frame is capped over, you can simply remove it from the nest, freeze it for 24 to 48 hours. That kills all the developing drone pupae and all the Varroa in the cells. Then you put that thawed out frame back into a hive. The worker bees will clean out the dead drones and clean out the dead Varroa. The queen will lay eggs in that drone comb and the process starts all over again. So taking these drone combs out, freezing them kills a good percentage of Varroa. It's very labor intensive. I mean, and it also takes up, you know, 10% of your brood nest. If you use a 10 frame brood nest and you're using one of those frames to be drone comb, you know, you, you're reducing the worker production potential by 10%, but it may be worth it if you're reducing the Varroa production as well. So there's some pros and cons of using drone comb. Again, you can find out a lot more at the Honeybee Health Coalition's Varroa Control website where they talk about drone brood removal and its efficacy and even have a video about how it works. So for the second, the question that you just answered, um, you were talking about managed versus native honeybees. And so this kind of leads me into the third question. So the questioner was asking, one of the reasons for low Varroa infestation in Africa and Asia is allowing high percentages of natural swarming. So my, the question is, you know, is natural swarming good for Varroa control? It's funny that this question comes in because I'm sitting right now in Grahamstown or Makanda, South Africa, where uh, Kayla and I, of course, were looking for wild honeybee colonies and, and realizing that they swarm and move around quite a bit. So, so yes, in general, this is a gross generalization, but in general, um, African bees, especially in the area where we are, have a greater swarm tendency than do European-derived bees, which tend to be the bees that are used for the honeybees that are used for production in many countries and continents around the world. All right. So that means to put short, you know, African bees tend to swarm more than European bees. I see it. I've known it for a long time. My colleagues here talk about it as well. Okay. So when a colony swarms, it creates a natural brood break, right? Because the old queen and half of the bees leave and the new queen has to emerge from her cell, go out and mate, lay her first egg. And then it takes that egg 21 days to go through all the developmental stages. So when a colony swarms, you can get a pretty significant brood break between the time the old queen leaves and the time the new queen's offspring is emerging from the cells. And that natural brood break can reduce varroa reproduction, therefore reduce varroa populations and colonies. So some people, especially folks who consider themselves natural beekeepers, right, this, this whole natural beekeeper movement right now, argue that we should allow colonies to swarm because allowing them to swarm is a natural way that they deal with Varroa. 
So I understand the logic and the biological relevance of all of that. The problem is it's not very useful in the world of honeybee uh, production. Colonies swarm during our honey, our major honey flows. And so when you lose swarms during that time of year, you lose significant honey production. If you're losing swarms that time of year, you're potentially losing the ability to make splits and have income other ways or to offer pollination services. So while it is technically true that swarming can help reduce varroa populations in the nest, from a production standpoint, swarming is still one of those things that's not advisable if you're you know, into honey production or pollination or bee production or package production. So it all depends on what your beekeeping angle is. If you just want a little bit of honey that you can put on your biscuits or put in your tea, then yes, allowing your colonies to swarm should be okay. Then you can you can collect the little bit of honey you produce, et cetera, no big deal. But if you're in production beekeeping and you want to maximize honey production, colony health and fitness and all of these other parameters, then swarm control seems to be a very important piece of kind of production apiculture. Now, we could get into the ethics of whether or not production apiculture is the way mm -hmm. to go. But I would argue that there are better and more efficient ways to control varroa than simply allowing their colonies to swarm. Now, with that said, I will give the quick caveat that commercial beekeepers essentially create artificial swarms, right? They split right. their colonies. Number one, to produce more colonies, to have more colonies or to sell colonies, but they also will do it as part of an integrated pest management strategy for varroa. Swarming by itself and splitting by itself will not control varroa. So they, even in the best of times, they would have to be coupled with other control measures. So you could argue that commercial beekeepers, you know, split colonies, which is a simply, simply a controlled swarm. And this can contribute to reduce varroa populations, but allowing colonies to swarm gives you lots of other problems. For example, you've got unchecked populations of bees in the environment that cannot be treated for varroa. So you've got a lot of varroa in the environment around you, or these, these feral colonies that you allow in the environment through swarming can be a disease or, or a parasite or a pest reservoir. So there's lots of reasons that I would argue that swarm control is better than no swarm control. And I think that maybe there are better strategies to control varroa than allowing colonies to swarm. But I understand the question. I really appreciate this question. And I love the fact that it, it mingles kind of biology with management all in the same question. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So those were the three questions for today. If you all have other questions, we have been receiving emails from uh, beekeepers. So we're, we're super excited about that. Send us an email or send us a message on one of our social media pages. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at UF Honeybee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Boo. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Boo and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.